Good morning, Eugene. Good morning, Sharice. Thank you, made you me... for waking up an extra hour early for me. Yeah, you made me roll out of bed extra early. Who knew that just one hour of time difference could affect us? Mm, I'm glad I woke up early, though. Yeah, look at that. I mean, we are a little bit spoiled. It's not It's not like 6.30 or anything right now. It's, it's a perfectly rational time for people to be up and working. <laughs> yeah. Except if you're a creative person. Hey, don't throw everyone under the bus. But it's true. The office that I'm working in right now, like people don't roll in until around the same time that we do at Macon. Yeah, I've been rolling in really late lately. I don't know. Anyways, that's that's beyond the point. Oh, hey, shout out to Natalie. She is Willie's friend and she hit me up to talk about making it up and to ask some questions about getting started in podcasting. And she says we are her favorite podcast. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's that's dope. Uh, it's funny because I'm in the midst of preparing some stuff and a brief and whatnot and just kind of laying it out on sort of um, a guide on how to get into audio storytelling from the, from the lens of making. I was really hoping you were leading to, I'm pitching someone to advertise on this podcast. I was like, oh. uh, Then... Honestly, it's funny you bring that up because someone did hit us up just uh, asking if we were interested in sort of their new service that pairs advertisers with podcasts. Oh, I think I saw that email. I might have, I might have put you on it. No, I Anyways. think what would be really cool is organically if any of our... Actually, I don't know. We didn't even talk about this like off air before, so I don't know if you are open to this idea. Oh, but I don't care. If any of our listeners organically would like to advertise something, you could reach out to us. Cause I don't know. I just feel like that would fit more, right? Like I'm not going to, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. I just don't think there are some things that I know this audience would not be interested in hearing about. Well, what would an example of that be? Car insurance. Yeah, that's fair. Fair yeah. car, car insurance. I don't know. Fast food. Although we're yeah, not all too righteous, self-righteous to say we I don't eat mean, fast food. I just don't think you want to hear an ad for it. We eat this fast food. You just, you don't need to be advertised. Yeah, exactly. In that regard. Yeah. So while you've been away, the big, the big topic of discussion that actually materialized over the course of literally like 24 hours is like, hey, let's rearrange the office. This is perfect for my subject. Thank know, you so much for doing this. So maybe I should <laughs> discuss a little bit about why we decided to change things up. Yes. Yes. No, please go ahead. I wasn't there. Tell me. Yeah, you weren't there. Um, Alex and I were just having a discussion like, oh, you know what? We don't really have a lot of space to like, quote unquote, create things in the office. And what he means by that is a lot of times you come into the office and you just like plop yourself down to the desk, put your headphones on. And there wasn't really this sort of opportunity to interact and connect if that makes sense i mean it's like yeah you're all in an open office so he's like oh like i want to build like a either i want to go and rent a small studio or i want to build a photo studio whatever it may be and i'm like i was like why don't we just try to see what we can make do with our current office and if anyone's never been to our office which is probably a lot of you um it's basically a studio and previously how we had it set up was uh, right in the very middle was sort of this living room area off to the side was like this pantry area. So we kind of flipped that around and moved the living room area slash TV PlayStation to one of the back corners, like back walls so that when the chance comes, we can just like roll down 
uh, a backdrop, like a seamless backdrop that it will cover the TV and we can start using that oh. to shoot stuff. So I kind of was like, we can't have two spaces that aren't, aren't always in use. You know, either pick one or the other, like either you're shooting photos and you're not watching TV or you're, you know, watching TV or whatever and I mean, you're not shooting photos. I think like we just fine. don't have enough room. Yeah. Well, I think that's yeah. fine. Yeah. We, we so shouldn't I, be so high maintenance that we need to both watch TV and shoot yeah. photos at the same time. Yeah, I think I think the overall sentiment just within those few hours that because we all stayed pretty late last night, but within those first few hours, it was like, oh, it feels a lot more open. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's good. And there's also this weird spot, as you know, where the the AC is super cold. So yeah. no one's sitting under there anymore. So Great. That's good. I'm really happy about that. It yeah. made no sense before because no one would ever sit in that desk. So since I've just spoken about something that's relevant to your first topic, you want to get us started? Yes. So we shared in the link list this Quartz article about Japanese concepts of space and how the Japanese interpret space that, I mean, some of them could be similar to Western concepts, but I think the idea is that um, the Japanese has more of a history of thinking about spaces this way. And what it is, is Mitsuru Kodama, this professor at Nihon University, says that the Japanese concept of space comes from their practice of Shinto and Buddhism. And Shinto, honestly, like this is straight from the article, because even though I've been in Japan for a month, I have learned nothing additional about Shinto or Buddhism. So Shinto focuses on harmony in relationships and connections, and then Buddhism focus on emptiness and selflessness. And I think that's actually a pretty commonly known idea. And one example of this that I wanted to talk about, well, one of them is perfect to what you said about the open office idea, but the another one, actually, so I was reading this article just out of curiosity. And the reason I picked it is because I was like, oh, I can see all of these things in my experiences in Japan this month. So Interesting. this is a very convenient, like on location topic for me. While mm-hmm. I, I'm still in Kyoto, it, we didn't say that at the beginning. Um, so one example of the Buddhism Shinto ideas like in architecture is that traditional tea houses will have like a lower and narrow door. And so you mm-hmm. have to like bow your head to get into the tea house. And the reason it's low and narrow is like exactly because of that posture. So you can't just like stride into a room. You have to, you have to like literally physically humble yourself. So yeah. I was visiting a tea house. It's, it's funny because yeah. I was going to say, I sometimes when I look at those experiences, I just think, and this is probably ignorant, is just like the overall stature of people. And it's more of a practicality thing. It's like, I don't need to make a doorway that big, but it actually has, you know, a particular meaning or purpose yeah, behind it. Because, because actually when you go into it, like, the roof is regularly, I mean, some of them, yes, they'll have lower roofs, but there, you will also enter traditional tea houses where the roofs are normal size height, like a, a regular person could stand up fine. Um, so I went to visit a tea house with our friend Sarah and I like totally smashed my head on the doorway, even though I'd watched like two other people enter before me. And then I, I just felt really dumb. But now I, I guess it's just that I wasn't I'm not used to that idea. Yeah. So it's, I feel good about the fact that there's like an explanation as to why that happened. Um, To get to the one that you talked about, about open office. So there's this concept that 
And I think this, there's this Western concept too, that you should be open to interruptions and distractions. And that in an office, if you arrange things for more knowledge, then it, it's beneficial to everyone who's yeah. working together. Yeah. Do you think that over the course of your career, there's been enough sort of thought process behind office layouts? And I guess even talking to your peers or whatever, do you think that companies, businesses, whether big or small, are, are putting enough emphasis on this? I think big ones, yes, but small ones, well, you know what? Even to that point, like I think you have heard pushback from some people that work for big companies and say, hey, you know what? Like this layout doesn't suit what I need yeah. to get my work done. You know, whether it's like you're a programmer or developer, and like, hey, there's way too many distractions. I just need quiet time. This yeah. open office doesn't work for me. Because I would say that when we we're planning our office, like everything we're doing right now in our little <laughs> tiny space is like, it's, it's actually very straightforward. It's like everything is along the perimeter uh -huh. and there's not really like, I don't know why we didn't do it in the first place or why we weren't thinking like that, but maybe it's just because the, the, the general use case for it now has changed or we want it to change. I do think there is like when I talked to, friends, peers, one-on-one, -on -one, there is definitely always some kind of pushback to the way their office is laid out. But it's also really hard. Like I have empathy for office planners because I think there are some things you don't realize until people are in the space. Mm -hmm. Like there are some things that you don't pick up until you have to do that every day. You know, like, oh, I didn't realize, like I have to move my chair this way every day, like a couple inches because of, I don't know, the air conditioning or the way the sunlight hits my eyes. Though actually the Japanese are really good at like anticipating those problems and maybe we could learn that is like more anticipation of these issues. One thing that I think we could change about our space, but it requires furniture purchase is we could get a bigger common table. Yeah. Because one thing, so I'm here at Waigian to yeah, maybe, office. Maybe, maybe what you can do is you can utilize an example of what in general, this type of change would make, because it's kind of like, I don't want it to be too use case specific where it's like, yeah, we need a bigger office table or it's more like, what does a bigger common table suggest or what does it promote? Um, I've been to a couple offices, workspaces and coffee shops in Japan that have very large common tables. So they're not just, um, they're not just like those narrow ones and they're not just like one four person square, but like maybe you could sit comfortably eight people around it. And it's okay mm -hmm. if like there aren't that many people in the office or like luckily in Japan, coffee shops are not even all that full, but it just provides an area for greater number of people and also still like have privacy if you want, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. while you're at a common table. But I mean, I know that there are some space limitations, but just the fact that it's like a large rectangular table, I think is the difference. Like and VS... Yeah, something that's just for three people or just for four. Yeah. Yeah, or, yeah. or offices that don't have any kind of common table. Like I think th usually a large enough office will have like a separate, oh, like a recreational space. But what I'm talking about is like a common table for working at if you choose. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah totally. Do you, do you, are you someone that needs a particular space to be e super effective or can you just sort of, Okay, so this actually Mesh. goes to another concept, which is called relational space, 
why and it was saying how like there's different spaces for intimacy so like and their example is that when you're in an office that's not the correct space to like start sharing your feelings with your coworkers. And if you have disputes, you should move it to like a bar <laughs> or like somewhere else because your space, like that office is not good for that. So what I think I have more difficulty with than some people who are at the office and some of my friends is that, um, I'm not good at transitioning quickly from like colleague to friend. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's weird like to stay in the office really late and not be working and be playing video games or watching TV or, you know, just eating and chilling. And I like to think of the office as like a space where I just get down and work. And I, th I think maybe, I don't know if that has so much to do with like the way a space is or just like what an individual is used to. Because mm -hmm. I think you have no problem with. Yeah. I think it's pretty easy for me to just like sort of have it all be this weird mix of everything and not really think twice of like, this is for that, that's for this. And I think sometimes it's actually problematic because I think it it doesn't allow you to properly compartmentalize the work you need done. And sometimes you're like, oh, I'm going to take a break. And you take a break and then it takes you another, you know, 15, 20 minutes to get going. You know, that yeah. little startup process after. Yeah. So it's probably better that you just can designate very clear lines and be like, hey, I'm going to spend, let's make this up, two hours, seven hours, whatever working. And then once that seven hours has elapsed, I'm done, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to move gonna... to another space for whatever it is. Exactly. That's next. Yeah. For recreational or for resting or for something like that. I, one thing that I think we're interested in is the idea that we're, this is so funny because we keep talking about Macon, but I guess it's like our common reference point. Um, the idea that our building is located in like in a certain neighborhood. And that's also one of the Japanese concepts that, um, a building is not separate from its context. So you don't want to separate, like you should consider your location, not just what the uh -huh. office setup is or like a restaurant or a bar or cafe or whatever, but what is the surroundings and it should be appropriate to that. Mm -hmm. And I like that idea a lot. Yeah. And just having a sense of, you know, this is something that needs to be cohesive within the community versus... Mm -hmm. This just, I mean, it's also very difficult in Hong Kong because like, since everything is basically built on top of one another, it's very difficult for you to go in and necessarily have unique identities or a broader identity. You know what I mean? Everyone has a different use case. And like, since you can't really pick and choose, there's no sort of like community board that's like, hey, this works, this doesn't work. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of like, and I think that's sort of the good, bad thing. It's probably... Interesting because it makes it very eclectic, right? And, you know, we actually were walking around the neighborhood, went to get lunch yesterday, and it's like you kind of see how this neighborhood, that which is traditionally pretty heavy in um, machined stuff, like yeah. there's little, little small factories all around. And now you see like these kind of ground level design studios pop up. It so, is a bit weird. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I almost it's, kind of wish we I mean, it's gentrification, right? That's essentially what it is. I almost do kind of wish we were in an industrial building. Like, that's what I expected from that neighborhood. Like, you know, the kind the kind where you have a lift and you have to operate the door yourself. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'd be more tied to the place. And I, I, I think one thing Japan, again, does really well is that they're really good at preserving exteriors and modifying interiors. But Hong Kong's really like rip everything down and start over. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? So the last one that I haven't mentioned yet is negative space. And it's this idea that you as an individual for your well-being should leave a free zone in your life for quietness and for awareness. And if a city is well planned, this means that there are like parks in the city and just like random public spaces so that when you pass through it, it's like a break from big roads. And mm. Hong Kong does not really have that. Um, so one thing that I really liked about Japan is that they, whenever there's like a tourist attraction, that's like a shrine or a temple, you actually have to walk quite away from the train station through like a park or through quiet roads to get to that shrine. And that's the idea that like you have space to prepare yourself, like to get into a mental space. If in Hong Kong, like the same thing existed, it would be that like, I mean, ideally, like our commute from the train station to the office would involve some kind of nice park or like a quiet riverside road. And then you would be able to like use that space to decompress from like going from home to the office yeah. or going from office back home. I think that decompression element is something that you struggle to find in a big city because you're always surrounded by people. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. I think I, I, how do I, how do I put this is like, since, since quote unquote creative work is not very robotic or shouldn't be robotic. There's that really important element of just thinking, slowing down and thinking about things. And I've, if you look at the current way things are laid out in big cities, like, there's only really two moments where you can almost guarantee privacy and seclusion. That's when you're in the bathroom, like showering or using the bathroom or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. So those become for better or worse, or like you're forced to use those moments <laughs> to like reflect. And I think maybe that's why the shower thoughts come through, right? <sighs> that's so I mean, sad. That's and you so also sad. can't bring your, you can't bring your phone into the shower. I don't generally disagree, speaking. but it's, Oh, you know, they mentioned that too. Like you, even if, you live a life that's um, that's not set up for quiet spaces, like you don't have convenient parks. You should still designate like technology-free spaces. Like I have friends who don't bring their phones into the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. And they only use their phone like everywhere else in the house. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense. And and it's like, yes, ideally, I think what's remarkable about the Japanese, like what this article is saying, is that they, as a society, have these common ideas. And mm -hmm. they have built up uh, infrastructure to allow for that. But like for us in Hong Kong or people in cities where there's not so much thinking about this, like on a society level, then you have to try and find it for yourself. Like you yes. have to be more aware. And the, the great thing about Japan is that like it accidentally happens. Like you, you will accidentally find yourself experiencing these kinds of spaces. And in Hong Kong, I think, like you said, like you have to treat the shower as that free zone.
My topic this week is about expert generalists. So as you all know, I think there's that really famous and often quoted study about the 10,000 hour rule. And this, this topic isn't really about that so much as like, it's kind of the, the opposite spectrum. You know, when people talk about expert generalists, it's generally on one side. And then when you have the other side, the flip side, it's about the 10,000 hour rule. Okay. So this, the original story itself focused on Charles Munger, who is Warren Buffett's lesser known business partner. And this guy's been very low key, kind of in the shadows, doesn't give a lot of interviews, press, whatnot. And a lot of people have sort of recognized him as being the kind of quintessential expert generalist. The simpler way of, of communicating this is someone who thinks very broadly and has sort of a, a working understanding of a lot of different things. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's not and, like, and not just different things, but like not just skills, but different kinds of knowledge, different kinds topics, of things everything. that they're learning about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would almost go as far as to simplify it and say, they just know how the world works through all these different pillars, whether it's science, art. Okay. Yeah. You know, I like all that, that stuff. Yeah. So there's actually a sort of like definition by, I'm going to say his last name wrong, uh, Orit Gadish. You tried. Chairman of Bain & Co. Who, he's the one actually coined the term expert generalist. And his definition is someone who has the ability and curiosity to master and collect expertise in many disciplines industries, skills, capabilities, countries, and topics. He or she can then, without necessarily even realizing it, but often by design, draw on that palette of diverse knowledge to recognize patterns and connect the dots over multiple areas. Drill deep to focus and perfect the thinking. I think that's a very like nice way of packaging everything. And it's sort of, if you kind of read between the lines, it's really about understanding the world around you and how it works. Right. And um, one way that he achieves this is through developing these these mental models. It's kind of like a simple observation of the world around you. And I think what what I t- take away from this is that there really isn't sort of a. A goal of perfection because everything's very fluid. Right. And I think it's more to inform a decision rather than define a decision. Okay. So you're kind of pulling all this intelligence, all this research that happens, I think, you know, that's sort of the beauty of the brain. It's like you're, you're, you're collating all these different references, all these bits of information and knowledge, and suddenly you're able to make these connections. I think that's sort of on an underlying level, that's what creativity is, right? It's kind of like, how do you see connections that people don't necessarily see, or it's not very apparent? Why did you pick this article? The reason I picked it is because I've personally think that that 10,000 our rule is bullshit. It's like, like you've always thought that. I think that the reason why I've never been a big fan of 10,000 hour rule is because the world never works in a vacuum. Well, so I mean, okay, hang on to push back against that. I think the 10,000 hour rule works for, and this article says this for specific things like music. Correct. I mean, not to it, say it's about, and again, it's about a certain depth of expertise, but they say that the, the, that rule works when you're talking about fields that have very defined rules, like sports and music. Like those are two really good examples. See, that's the thing. I, I, almost, I honestly think that sports itself doesn't necessarily follow that rule either because sports in itself is not just the physical act of, of, a, of a technique, right? There's so many elements 
that go within sports that I think a lot of people discount. Music I can't speak for, but to use the sporting example, it's like, yes, you can you can be the person that throws the ball the hardest. You can be the person that is the most accurate, but there are so many things that allow you to get to that point to achieve that that aren't necessarily defined just by what happens on the pitch and what you learn on the pitch. So it's like even your own, your own human psychology, you know, understanding how people think, uh, understanding, um, just reading, just reading how plays develop. Like, I think those are all things that in some ways, yes, they're tied to the sport, but I think there's a lot of other ways of breaking things down. And you know what? I think I, that, let, can I use another yes, example? Yes, yes, go so, ahead. All through my like, quote unquote, you know, career, I've, you know, when I played at a high level, I was always a goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. And then I started to, you know, come onto the professional world, start working. And I, I kind of developed my own mental model of how to solve problems, how mm-hmm. to identify weaknesses and solve problems. And oddly enough, when I started playing like recreationally and playing as an outfielder, it actually became very easy to get better faster even though I'm like older, the body might not be up to the same standards as what it once was, but actually everything became so easy and, you know, improving upon things that you weren't good on actually was a lot more straightforward. And I think that to me was sort of what people say when they, when they, when they kind of rely on experience to get them through, you know, challenges. And I think that was to me, one of the bigger sort of takeaways that comes with being sort of this expert generalist and and someone that can take different skills from things outside of what this particular goal or what this particular challenge is. I, I'd like to hear your sort of pushback against that. No, no, no. Now I'm thinking, I am wondering if, okay, so l- uh, let me trace my thought process. So the 10,000 hour rule in my life, what, like, if you look at yours and you've played footy pro- for probably that amount of time. Um, for me, what I have done is I've done drawing for many, many hours, like actually like using a pencil, not, not digital drawing, like not what I do now in Photoshop. But since I was a kid, I have been using pencils and crayons and pens, et cetera, to get to a kind of technical perfection, right? Like that was the aim for a long time, like to be able to draw something photorealistically. But I am now convinced like I tell people all the time that anyone can draw. Like I, I tell you that, right? When we do these making it up illustrations that I think, I think you draw fine. So maybe for me, what I'm still working to shake is to become that person who is able to not, per, not, I think I'm fine where like, I don't require expertise from other people. Like I, I don't judge you critically for not, having drawn all your life. But for myself, I think I find confidence in the fact that I have been drawing for so long. And maybe it's not that I have actually like the confidence comes from not actually having done that thing for so many hours, but knowing that I've done it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And when you are able to switch yourself to this expert generalist kind of thinking about yourself, then you can find confidence in whatever you approach instead Mm -hmm. of, instead of relying on the fact that, Oh, I know I can do this because I've done it for so many hours. You rely on the fact that, you know, I'm versatile and flexible enough that I can pull anything from my life in, in application. Yeah. 
No, I, I think that's how I look at it. And, you know, I, this whole thing, like, I think maybe it was just like this sort of thematic thing that I saw in the last few days was just coming across this, this article, looking at the world around us, seeing where the world is. I think deficient is always a strong word. I always usually default to really, really strong words that are kind of very black and white, but yeah, like where, what are things that are currently limiting? Right. And I think cultural awareness is the big one. It's like how do different people from different walks of life communicate to one another Mm -hmm. and how do you solve that? And I think that's where the expert generalist thing is something that I really gravitate towards because making this up, but like if you have experience with the whole gamut of culture, rich, poor, different genders, different sexualities, whatever it may be, you kind of know how to interact with each of those sort of um, those groups. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think on a broader perspective, and I tweeted about this, I was just like, Hey, you know, what? there's certain, there's certain countries out there that are really embracing these sort of nationalistic vibes. They are kind of approaching things in a way where they're really focusing on their own culture instead of looking at ways to accentuate and to, you know, improve their situation on a global playing field. Right. I don't need to go into the details of that. So I was thinking to myself, why are they limited in their ability to understand how you can work on a global scale? And I think a lot of it comes down to this sort of lack of whether it's expert generalism, probably not, but I think it dips into that. You know, it's like, do they have an understanding of the world that is beyond their borders? Right. So that's kind of where my whole sentiment behind this. And I find it really interesting because expert generalism in many ways, like there's no predefined path. It's like, if, if it works as truly well as it does, which I I believe in, it's like you could pick up any topic. And if you're, you're strong in your mental models, you'll be able to find some sort of relevance to anything you do. I'm thinking about how it requires, it requires you to think about yourself differently to perceive your abilities and what you can attempt differently. You, you think it's difficult to be self-aware? I don't, I don't think it's difficult. I think the thing is that the way society is structured still, like when you apply for a job, it's like, oh, how many years of experience do you have in this field? Do you know what I mean? Like if I was applying for a traditional kind of art director job, it would be, you know, how many years have you worked in an agency as a designer and then as a senior designer? And, you know, how many projects have you directed? And it's very much about like, what are your relevant skills? So even if society is still structured that way, you would have to be um, willing to consider yourself in a different light and not just like, Oh, I have eight years experience in this. Yeah. Which I think is important. I think that if people were to understand the value, I think in many ways you're kind of reading between the lines when people want sort of globally minded individuals that travel a lot, whatever it may be like travel in itself does lend itself to a bit of this expert generalism too, because it's one of the easier ways to sort of embark on that. You know, the mental models of being in a new place and understanding how to navigate because the rules of the past or the rules that you're accustomed to no longer are valid. I don't know if I agree, but I think that 
my disagreement with you regarding travel is colored by my personal experiences because I don't find traveling difficult. You don't, but I think that at some point, like you've grown into it and you've probably traveled your whole life. Have you like, did you start traveling when you were really young? Yeah. Which is why I was like hesitant to even talk about it because I know that like my attitudes towards traveling and being in other countries comes from great privilege, like the great privilege of having traveled since uh, I was Albeit it is a bit easier in, in a Asia, you know, like a, a new culture, a new country is literally an hour and a half in any direction. Right. Yeah. 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 Like I, I don't, I don't. I understand that there are some people, like if you live in North America or Australia or somewhere that's very like landlocked and you have like a whole country where you do road trips instead, like maybe you don't fly as much. And so then that experience is, um, it's more expanding to you. Yeah. Like it's more out of the ordinary. But mm-hmm. having an understanding of how this whole expert generalism has been contextualized. Does yeah. it make you rethink how you look at your passions? It, your passions are generally places where you de- derive some sort of expertise, it, right? Like on ma- a relative level. It on makes a relative me level. want to be, it makes me want to be less afraid of the things that I know I'm not an expert in. Like I'm not very good at maths or science and I don't have, I, I'm not, I'm probably never going to be like particularly good at maths or science, but um, it makes me want to read more about those subjects, like read more about the things that I'm not as comfortable with. And I know that I'm like, I can't be an expert in this thing. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is I, once you start to change the way you look at things and Hey, and think to yourself, I'm going to take this opportunity to just like embark on this new skill The if you adopt this expert generalist approach, I think you soon realize that actually there is no sort of like detriment here. You know, I was, I, I remember I was in a, I, I met this person at this meetup. Um, I'm just wondering if I should tell them what kind of meetup it was, but anyways. Wait, so yeah, you, at, you have to tell me what meetup it was. I went to this cryptocurrency meetup. Oh, right? I right? see so now. Okay. This, anyways, it's just, I don't like talking about it because it's kind of cliche. Everyone's, oh, everyone's into crypto now. Okay, but no, just, anyways, just fast forward to the person okay. instead. But the, there's one person who was there and he's just trying to learn. I mean, he had enough interest to come to the meetup and he was a friend of one of the organizers. And I just found it really fascinating because he just felt as though he was going to sink so much time into learning about crypto when it's so speculative currently, right? Like he might go and learn all this stuff that might be redundant in you know, let's just put a number on it, 12 months time. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, like, there are so many interesting things that come into play here that there's no way you can be that narrow-sighted in terms of picking up something. You know, like there's so many skills you can work through. Like, you know, it could be, it could be be teaching yourself Linux, right? right? Right. On a very basic level, which I've, I've actually learned because of just, you know, dabbling a bit in crypto and like, oh, this is kind of interesting. So I, th- I, I was like kind of taken aback and I didn't want to fight him on it. I was like, yo, if that's your perspective, that's your perspective, right? Like I there's mean, no point in pushing someone to be like, hey, there's 
greater value in just learning a new skill because that wasn't the topic at hand. If that's your perspective, then you must only pick really long lasting subjects to that spend seemed your like time that on. seemed like what it was about. You know, or like lo- what you perceive to be long lasting, like, oh, this is going to be around in 20 years. So I'm going to yeah learn about this now. So I think that in my eyes, like you can always dip in and out of new passions. And, but I think what's most important is like being very interested and fascinated and committed to something mm-hmm. and just being open minded to failure and then taking even those two parts of the equation and applying it back into your professional life or other things. I think there's immense value in that. Yeah. You just need to like contextualize it properly. Understand, Hey, you know what? You remember when I picked up, you know, pottery six, six years ago. Oh, you know what? There's something from there that I can apply now to my job as an art director. Actually, now that you mentioned pottery, we know a great expert generalist. Ambrose? Yes, our friend Ambrose. We should call him that instead of... One time we said he is like the most quintessential hobbyist. But instead of calling him a hobbyist, we should call him an expert generalist. Yeah, I think think that's fair. It sounds better. Just just so people know, he's really big into pottery, watches. Jewelry uh, making? Jewelry making. (laughs) What else is he big into? He knows, Tattoos. I definitely describe him as someone who knows quite a lot about a lot of subjects. Like I would not label him a singular expert, but oh, if I had a question about this, I could ask Ambrose. Yes, Ambrose. I, I think that as the world becomes much more interconnected, you can never, you can't be so reliant on just being an expert as much. Although, no, let me take that back. I think experts are always required. But I think the more profound thinkers are the expert generalists that know how to plug their personal deficiencies with an expert. And the reason why they're more valuable or they're going to play a bigger role is because they have the ability to see from a much bigger picture. None of this conversation suggested to me that experts will come, you know, go out of fashion and we won't have experts because there are people who are experts in like you know, like professionals who are only ever invested their entire careers in like one type of beetle or one type of moss. And we need those people too. But most likely for you and me and our listeners, like that's not us. Like we're actually probably more likely to be an expert generalist. Yeah. And especially if you're an entrepreneur, I think you're forced to be an expert generalist. I would say entrepreneur and creative. Yeah. You kind of need to do that. Good place to wrap things up. Cool. That was, a, that was a pretty fascinating discussion today. If you are interested in learning more about us, Macon, and our membership opportunities, which include weekly briefings, exclusive content, and a members-only Slack community, you can check us out at macon.com. All our stories are there as well that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. There was an extra pep in your step there. I don't know why you seemed a little bit more animated than usual. I think I was thinking about, I listen back. I don't listen back to every episode now, but I listen back to some occasionally. And I listened to our last episode. And in the wrap up, you sounded more animated than me. So I was like, no, I'm bringing it. Oh, trying to come up over the top, eh? (laughs) Let's see how it is. Should I outdo you? I mean... Can you outdo me in a way that doesn't just cause immediate laughter? Uh, 
Uh, you're right. Okay, let me try. Let me try. Let me try. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. 